Hi everyone, we're really excited for today's Square episode where we are going to be discussing and celebrating Women's History Month. It is a month we have celebrated in this country since 1987. It's a time where we celebrate women's accomplishments, but we also take the time to reflect on the roadblocks and glass ceilings that are still getting in our way. Um, in that spirit, we have invited some really wonderful guests onto the show today to have a rich conversation about leadership and design, the power of education, and breaking barriers. Before we get started, we're gonna take some time and quickly introduce ourselves. I'm Tanya White. I'm a design researcher within Hugo, which is Corgan's research and innovation department. And Anita, why don't you introduce yourself? Of course. My name is Anita Delgado, and I have been with Corgan for 13 years. I am a project designer and architect, as well as a senior associate. I'm Lindsay Wilson, a president here at Corgan and interiors market sector leader. I'm Nida Ali, and I've been working at Corgan for a year and a half now at the Education Studio. I'm an architecture and media art graduate. Okay, so let's kick off this conversation with a very important question, which is why are you all here? Why have you pursued um, a career in the field of architecture and design? And specifically, how does your identity as a woman enhance your role in the field? You know, I'll jump in first because I'm the only interior designer amongst this group and the oldest. Um, and part of the choice for interior design, I think, did have to do with being a woman. So the, the field, absolutely a passion for art and design and creativity and wanting to be a part of a team. Um, but I will tell you, I was just drawn to the interior design studio. At the time where I went, they were separate. And I mean, if I really think back on it, that's just where I thought I should go because that's where all the girls were. Um, so I'd love to hear to hear from, from you, Anita, choosing the path of architecture instead of interior design. Okay, so uh, there's a funny story behind this. Um, I actually decided to be an architect when I was seven years old, <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. And I think uh, the main reason was that I, I had the the benefit of growing up in four Latin American countries by that age. And I always observed this disparity between the social strata and very much reflected within the architecture. And to me, uh, being an empath, I, I suffered um, for homelessness and I, I wanted to be part of that change. And I felt that uh, also liking drawing and art and, and all of that, all of the uh, creativity activities, uh, architecture would be the perfect path. I, I did make a bet with my grandmother because my grandmother, um, she told me, oh, sweetie, don't, don't marry yourself up to that, um, that only choice. You know how many grandkids I had and they've changed their opinion of what they're gonna be uh, and I said no I I will bet you $20 <laughs> that I will be an architect <laughs> and so now I realize that I should have asked for a little bit yeah. more <laughs> <laughs> but I did um, commit to it and, and um, I don't think at that age I rea really realized where was I allowed to be in society's eyes within the, the career 
Um, that was something that I discovered later on as I uh, entered the School of Architecture because, uh, like yourself, Lindsay, I did feel that there was a push to have uh, women in a certain location versus men, and I, I had to undergo a lot of tough um, moments there with professors uh, back in Puerto Rico that did not believe that women should be in architecture. So. What about you? You are recently out of school and starting your career. What are your What are your thoughts and perspectives? Well, I actually why? did not know I wanted to be an architect when I was growing up. I grew up in Saudi Arabia, and then we moved to Pakistan. And then um, Yasmin Lurie is like one of the first female architects in Pakistan, and she's a social activist. So growing up, I was like, okay, she's kind of cool. Maybe this is something I want to get into. Hmm. So then I started getting into architecture because of the way she designed her buildings geared towards social justice and looking out for impoverished communities. And that's how I get hmm. in ar- got into architecture. That's so interesting. Uh, well, thanks for sharing. Um, okay, so now let's look a little bit outside of ourselves. Um, first, I want to share this excerpt from uh, the Women's History Proclamation that comes out every year in honor of the celebration. This year it reads, During Women's History Month, let us honor the accomplished and visionary women who have helped build our country, including those whose contributions have not been adequately um, recognized and celebrated. Let us pay tribute to the trailblazers for daring to envision a future for which no past president existed and for building a nation of endless possibilities for women and girls. What stood out to me in this was the term trailblazer, which I just loved. It evokes passion and this like fearlessness, but I want to know what does trailblazing mean to you? And if you can tell us about a trailblazing woman that you admire and they do not need to be um, in the field of design either. I'd like to go first. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Behnaz Farai should come to mind because she's an Iranian architect, but is also a media artist and she works more towards creating technologies that like are incorporated in not just spaces but around the body mm-hmm. so they're more human centric than they are mm-hmm. about the environment so i think her work is something that is inspiring to me and one word that comes to mind would be confidence mm-hmm. for me when yep. i when i think of trailblazing yeah absolutely um I would have to say, um, when I hear the term trailblazer, um, the woman that comes to mind is Isabel Allende, the Latin Mm -hmm. American writer. Uh, I really admire her. Um, She, uh, by career, she was a reporter. And uh, she eventually became this trailblazer um, writer uh, that broke barriers for Latin American authors, female authors, um, very uh, kind of late in her career, I would say. Um, And she had so many setbacks, including political persecution, having to flee her own country, um, and then uh, the tragic death of her young daughter. Um, And she's somebody that draws inspiration and strength from all of those points that would probably bring anybody else down um, to create this wonderful, wonderful story. So um, when I think of her, I, I would say uh, not only courage, but also resiliency mm. comes to mind. Love that. So I will throw um, Melinda Gates into the mm-hmm. into the conversation. I 
for me, she illustrates a couple of things that I have really strong opinions about. One is an incredible partnership between her and Bill. It would be so easy for her to be in the background, but instead she seized this opportunity that they have as a family to really change the world and she really stepped into that role I think to give a voice with such a precise message of what happens when we educate women globally and economically in the world um, such a clear message and then to put their money and their power behind mm -hmm. it I think she's a she's a trailblazer yeah she's very they're, well they're all very inspiring um, and this kind of sets up for the next question. You must have known what I was going to ask next. <laughs> but it's no. about education. So increasing women's access to education contributes to economic empowerment. Research conducted by the UN uh, shows that when women work, economies grow. Uh, women's economic empowerment boosts productivity. It increases income equality. And it all starts with access to education, which the Gates Foundation has been a huge proponent of. Um, can you tell us about the role that education has played in your career? And this can be, you know, when you were in a degree granting program or how you kind of maintain ongoing education um, outside of school. But education is so powerful, especially for women, and would love your thoughts. Who wants to wade into this one? <laughs> I can start. Um, I think education in our profession is everything, right? Without a background um, to hold us up, we, we wouldn't be able to practice as we do. Um, in my case, I am very thankful for the experience that I had at the University of Puerto Rico. It toughened me up beyond words. Um, but I also have to give a lot of credit to Texas A&M. Um, my dream was always to come to the U.S. and Texas A&M made that dream come true. Um, being able to pursue my master's degree. It was a school that made me feel like I was um, welcome and they wanted for me to, mm -hmm. to come and, and be part of their program in comparison to other schools which I had applied to that almost made you feel like they were um, they were get, making you a favor for accepting you. And so I think that instilled a sense of confidence that I had somewhat lost at at mm -hmm. the university in my undergrad um, that I I was worth it and they saw something in me and so it gave me the strength to also see that in myself mm -hmm. and and further uh, that into my studies into my projects and then eventually uh, coming here and, and working professionally hmm. I had a similar experience I did my undergrad in Pakistan and I knew I wanted to come to the States and like do graduate school. So for me, it was more like a lot of, a lot of girls back home or in Pakistan don't end up pursuing their master's or graduate degree. And I was like, no, I'm gonna do two graduate degrees at the same time. So for me, it was like wow. looking for schools that would let me pursue both the graduate degrees that I wanted to. And then I found that at University of Buffalo and that's where I did my master's in architecture and media art production. And so that, that like drive that you had like most people don't pursue an advanced degree, so I'm gonna get two. Even the way you said that, yes, like I yes. felt, <laughs> what What do you think cultivated that like? Feeling? Yeah. I think my family supported me a lot. My mom was a, my, my dad passed away when we were super young, so my mom raised us and she was like, no, you're gonna do what society doesn't tell you to do. 
and that's that's what drove me I was like I don't want one master's degree but I want two and that's that's what I did and watch out because she might get a third one (laughs) (laughs) you know it's interesting so so I I'll go back to even like elementary school and middle school so I'm a Generation X. Anybody remember Generation X? Nobody ever talks about us or writes articles about us. Um, but we were really, I think, a generation that our mothers were all like, oh, you guys can do whatever you want. Like, all, like my friend's mom's telling, everybody's mom's. And most of our mothers did not have careers. But I think they all saw that opportunity was coming. I do think there's some tension where we are now, where all of us in that generation, in our 40s and above, like, so we were told we could do all this stuff, and then it turns out it's way more complex than, you know, maybe in fifth grade they they laid it out to be. But that's what, as far as education, I really feel like I was afforded a lot of opportunities as a woman, and they were really pushing us to kind of stick our stick our hands up in the air literally Mm -hmm. and be called on yeah well that's really powerful i love that y'all are sharing these stories i love the the part about the mother figure Mm -hmm. because i i think they don't like you were saying they didn't have a careers and maybe we don't see them like trailblazers but they had a lot of impact in what we ended up doing I mean, yeah. I wouldn't say they would. I think their career was more geared towards us, yes, as opposed to raising us. Yes, they were devoted to, to us. Yeah, I think that's the that's first empowering yeah. figure. I think. Yeah. Well, and what you said about your mom, making sure you had mm-hmm. all those opportunities. What society wouldn't let us oh or God, didn't yeah. want yeah. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really powerful. I mean, I was raised by a single mother as well, who was like you will go to school like a school in an education is like the pathway to being able to take care of yourself and advocate for yourself and also build a network of other women and and people who are in your community you know to support one another because it's it's hard doing it on your own <laughs> you said the magic words advocate for yourself mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and for each other yeah and, and for each, each other that's so important that's what melinda gates talks a lot about right So, as we're talking about women and this kind of pipeline from education into the workforce, what is coming to mind is everything that's happened in the last year with COVID. I think this is officially our COVID anniversary today. Is it? Yep, of lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to celebrate that. But there are some pretty um, astonishing stats that are coming out about women in the workforce. Um, One that I pulled that uh, I had to reread it twice was in September of 2020 alone. So in one month, 865,000 women dropped out of the American workforce. Um, Additionally, the share of mothers who have left the labor force is three times that of fathers. And these trends are even more uh, dire for uh, women of color. Uh, black women, Hispanic women, uh, they are facing disproportionately higher rates of unemployment and kind of this exodus out of the workforce. And so the question is, how might this impact the field of architecture and design and how can we facilitate women back into the workforce? I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> we were talking <laughs> this is <a> big behind <laughs> the scenes. I, I have, um, so, um, I, I, 
I had this experience. Uh, I, I know that a lot of us as mothers, we had this experience of uh, being dealt a really hard card to play uh, last year. I remember that uh, when we were starting uh, all of the closures and, and um, isolation and, and really freaking out about COVID, that's when I was about to give birth to my second daughter. And so, uh, I mean, it, it was a moment of a lot of fear, but it was also a lot of a lot of growing and um, uh, shifting and, and adapting and, and learning how to do things in a different way. Um, so when I returned to work, we were still all working from home and I had this newborn to take care of. Um, I had hired somebody to take care of my two-year-old uh, because I knew that that was just out of the question that I could do both things at once and actually be able to pull a full day of work. But I have so many pictures of me typing with my baby right here, or uh, eventually I started holding her in, in her little carrier and typing and drawing and coming up with sketches and then having Zoom and, and Skype meetings. And, and she became a, the part of the meetings, you know? So I, I think one thing that was very helpful to me was a, my team supporting me. That was of utmost importance. Them being able to adapt themselves as I was adapting myself to the situation and being encouraging, not uh, belittling my accomplishments or, hey, you're, you're busy right now, but um, being flexible with me. Maybe you will do it in a little bit more time, but you will get it done. And so I, I felt that that made a humongous difference and that there's there's a lot of businesses that don't deal in that same way they don't have that flexible uh, mindset and maybe they are not empowering of women that are facing those situations or many other situations um, so I, I, I think um, I, I feel bad for for those who had to leave the workforce due mm -hmm. to that yeah and it's I think the last time I read about 85% of women have children, so that, and then women make up about 50% of the world. Yes. So you, th you know, it's a, it's a lot of women who are going to experience that at some point in yes. life. Well, and I know we've read a lot of the same articles, Tanya, that that the recovery prediction puts women's recovery of coming back into the workforce years behind, because a lot of men lost their jobs as well during COVID, but that the recovery for men regaining employment will yeah. be two to three years faster than women getting back up to those same numbers. The statistic is that the, the percentage of women in the workforce now is back to where it was in the late 80s, which is crazy. Time travel. It is time travel <laughs> of the wrong kind. And I think what what's gonna be really interesting is can we be a part of innovative solutions for getting women back 
in the workforce. Um, there's a very cool company down in Austin called the Prowess Project that is specifically targeting women who've been out of the workforce. They were founded before COVID mm. and now she's just seizing this, her name's Ashley Connell who, who founded it, seizing this opportunity um, to, to really put together highly skilled workers who've been out of the workforce with flexible employment that mm. employers are looking for. So that's just one tiny example. I think there's a ton of room for creative ways to get women back into the workforce in jobs that lend themselves to flexibility mm -hmm. if that's what's needed. Um, but it's a it's a daunting hill to climb when you read when you yeah. read those numbers. It's a, it's like unfortunate because not just architecture but every job in workforce was lacking like ethnical, cultural, racial and like gendered perspectives and now it's like we're going back to that instead of like progressing it feels like we're regressing with those perspectives mm -hmm. yeah and um this kind of brings up another topic underrepresentation in leadership um so harvard business review recently reported that only 4.9 percent of fortune 500 companies and two percent of s p 500 ceos are women 20 years ago there were just two companies on that list uh, that were run by women. But at the same time, and Lindsay, you shared this research article with us yesterday, uh, shows that women tend to score higher than men on most leadership um, skills like resilience, motivating others, and building relationships. So there's a kind of a disconnect that is um, intention. Why do we think this is? And how do you think women are uniquely positioned to be leaders? So, I mean, the research shows and per, uh, most of our personal experience would echo that once women are leaders, they flourish in those roles. So for me, as much as we can dig into the path, it's the disruption of the career path that I think it's not a lack of women in higher education. It's not a lack of women getting advanced degrees. I have, I am the only one of the four of us without an advanced degree in this group. So we are not missing those opportunities. It's not at the entry level positions. We see it here at Corgan. We're we are 50 50 at all of our kind of entry staff level positions. It's this disruption of the leadership path. And that's what I'm kind of interested in. I wish I had all the answers. I certainly don't. But that's where I think we can dial in and, and potentially figure out how to make a difference in the shorter term. I think there's also a misconception that as we rise within our careers, um, it, it, it's almost parallel that you already have your family and your kids when when you're ready to assume a leadership role in most cases. And there's this misconception that you won't be able to devote your entire time to this because you have other responsibilities. And I think that's one misconception that we have to erase because we're very good at being efficient. We're very good at doing 15 hour work days and like putting them into this, right? Um, so I think we have that ability of being full-time moms, full-time spouses, uh, as well as full-time professionals. Um, we have, you were saying naturally, we have a lot of qualities that makes us good leaders. We are nurturers by nature. And I think if we're gonna deal with 
daring leadership that is something that is very needed uh, we tend to be a little bit more comfortable with vulnerability um, in than maybe a lot of uh, male figures out there um, and we tend to to create this very uh, impactful and meaningful connections with our peers and the people that we mentor I do think it's tempting and I'll speak for myself to take yourself out because you're afraid you're not going to be able I mean there's tons of research about men are overconfident in what they're capable of often and women are not as confident in what they're capable of and I think sometimes right at the moment when you could kind of grab an opportunity we I get scared and you don't want to overcommit because you'd rather undercommit and over deliver so I do think this you said confidence at the very beginning and I think mm -hmm. confidence is such a huge part of it I mean sometimes I feel myself physically wanting to push some of the women that work here of like go, go. like you <laughs> are the one you know do it and and but there's that oh my gosh I'm committed to this I'm committed to this I've got kids I've got a partner I've got all these things and we instead of going for it we might be like "Ooh, there'll be another opportunity mm -hmm. but there might not yeah I feel like years ago there wasn't enough opportunities for women but now there is and it's just the fear of like trying to go for those opportunities and mm -hmm. I think that's what that's the push we need yeah so you said daring leadership, yes. and I thought of Brene Our Brown, girl. and it couldn't be a conversation <laughs> about women in leadership without Brene Brown. She's here in spirit. Oh, yes. um, she's a leading researcher in vulnerability and leadership in general, and she's also, I'm pretty sure, a homegrown Texan. Yes. Um, what do you think it means to be a courageous and kind of fearless leader? Honesty, maybe loyalty. Yes from the people you work with, from the people you build relationships with, I think. I think that's, in my opinion. Yep. That is one of Brene's pillars. Honestly, yes. like just having like saying, being honest is the kindest thing yes. you can and do in many relationships. Clear is kind. Mm -hmm. Yes. Brene-ism. You do. <laughs> you do. There, another, you can go Brene Brown and then Glennon Doyle at the same time. I yes. love her too. She has a great uh, quote, which is, uh, the braver I am, the luckier I get. Hmm. Like, how true is that? So, I mean, fearlessness to me is that a fearless leader is brave, but also vulnerable yes. and inclusive mm -hmm. because I mean, it's really, it's such a frustrating thing for me when people aren't aligned on this. I mean, well, great leaders tend to only be considered great leaders because their teams are awesome. And then by in turn, they end up looking yep. like a great leader. So, you know, there's never been an army of one that people said was fantastic. Mm -hmm. You have to have a team who really they're the ones that rise to the occasion mm -hmm. and multiply out that that impact. So a fearless leader is not afraid to be at the back. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, I believe that you definitely have to be comfortable with vulnerability, both within yourself and also within your peers. Um, because that, like she says, it, that's the path to courage, right? Um, in our industry, we are within the creative 
innovation industry, if we're going to see it that way. Um, we cannot uh, allow ourselves not to be vulnerable because it, it's at that moment of feeling uncomfortable that the best ideas arrive. And so we need to give space to ourselves to feel that fear and to raise through that fear with courage. And we have to allow the space for others to do the same. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we will never be innovative. Absolutely. I yeah. could not agree more that... I'm glad we have that recorded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need to listen to that again. Anita. That was right on. Taped up on the wall. Uh, yeah, no, the, the vulnerability is so important, especially if you want people to, you know, craft an idea, you know, in their in their mm -hmm. privacy and then bring it to you, yes. right? You don't, even if it's not the idea, there's an essence of it that you could still use and you don't want to squash yes. it or of course yeah. and there's so much value in failure right we fear failure but failure often leads us in the right path uh, and if you think about it the word failure kind of dissipates once we start acting upon it it's just a mere setback where you take a pause reassess and come up with a better idea mm -hmm. so I, I think we have to lose fear of that fear of failing I think failure is what builds your confidence. Exactly. The more times you fail, the more confident yes. you get with every opportunity you get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you fail and the world did not come to an end, <laughs> yes. right? It was, yes. it was all okay. And you were, in fact, one step closer to the right answer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Failure is very important. And we've all kind of experienced uh, a time when we wish we could have done something differently, or maybe we didn't feel as prepared. And oftentimes the kind of community around you can help you get moved through those uh, moments. So what advice would you give to women who are starting off in the workforce uh, in general, right? Whether it's like navigating career growth or finding mentorship, um, and also to women that are currently in the workforce. I would say don't let society constructed norms stop you from doing what you want to do. I feel, mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that's prevalent in my country, but I feel like everywhere else too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, business as usual is mm -hmm. hmm, interesting. I think that notion of you know controlling the narrative is something too often for women. It gets written for us. And so, I mean, for me talking about and having the ability to talk to women early in their careers about communication, like you have to communicate about your goals, about when you need help, when you're going to be holding the baby and typing at the same time, but you are going to get it done. Like communicating will just build your confidence, I think to our point, and then your team to understand, teams of men and women to understand what you want, where you need more balance in your life, or when you you want the next opportunity. And I think sometimes the, the past kind of societal path has been, well, everybody will know that I'm gonna do a good job and I'm smart and I will get my opportunity when it's my turn. And I say, nope. You gotta make it known what you wanna do, but then be super open to coaching and how you get there. Mm -hmm. But that communicate, controlling the narrative for yourself, I think is huge. Yeah. And knowing you can change it. I think women also get super hung up on, 
okay, I'm, I'm 24 years old. I might want to have kids. I don't Fine. That's cool. What do you want to do in the next three years? And you might change it after a year, but you yeah. do not have to broadcast <laughs> out your entire career. Um, let's think about the next step and the next step because your managers and your leaders then can really help advance your path. And if they don't, that's all you need to know. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Sorry, completely. I'll put my soapbox away. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, I think making your goals known and speaking them openly with your leaders, uh, that is the first step. Um, and, and I guess the first step really is you clarifying to yourself, right? And then speaking out loud what your goals are. Um, and another piece of advice, don't be afraid to bring your thoughts, your opinions, your new ideas, um, and don't be afraid to share them with the thought that they will not be well received. Mm -hmm. They might be out of the box, they might not be the way that things are done maybe, but it might actually highlight what needs to happen at that moment. And it might be that fresh air that everybody was needing. So don't be afraid to, to share that wealth of information, that, um, that perspective that you personally are bringing to the table. Yes. I get asked that question all the time at stuff where people are like, what would you tell your younger self? And I always say the same thing, say the thing. Because how many times did I sit in a meeting, like everybody does, mm -hmm. and be like, oh, I have an idea. Well, mm -hmm. I'm just not going to say it. Nope, mm -hmm. I would have told my younger self to. <laughs> <laughs> Louder for the say ones it. in the back. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we've reflected on some of these roadblocks and glass ceilings that get in our way. What are some hopes that you have for the next five years, let's say? We don't have to think of 20 years out. Three to five years for, um, for women. diverse perspectives I guess yes. and that's what I'm really pushing for and hoping for, for the next five years that we'd have more we'd have different voices not just different point of views but mm -hmm. we would actually listen and hear people from different like backgrounds yes. is something yeah. that I'm hoping for yeah absolutely some intersectional mm -hmm. perspective yeah absolutely overall <laughs> I would be hopeful as we try to get women back in the workforce we really think about jobs in terms of what are the skills that are needed, soft skills and mm -hmm. and the, the hard skills for the job. So you talked about empathy at the very beginning. Is this a job that needs empathy? And then you go looking for the person who might be someone who's been out of the workforce for two years and they might be the perfect fit instead of starting with the notion of, of who that person mm -hmm. is and then fit them into the job. I think it's gonna take that type of thinking to really get um, to get people back in the workforce, to get diverse perspectives um, around every table. And I just hope to see more women in leadership roles across organizations. I think it benefits the organization um, and that, that women put their hand up and, and go for it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And um, I, I would also like to add, a, I would like to see more women empowering women think that's very much needed. We understand what we go through. Um, I think we have similar perspectives and um, I, I would love to, to see that happen more. More conversations like this, yes. perhaps. Yes, of course. <laughs>
This has been a really great enriching conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thanks to the audience for tuning in. If you are watching this on YouTube, it is the abbreviated version. For the full episode, tune in to our audio podcast. Thank you so much and happy Women's History Month.